You are listening to the Birth Bruja podcast, radical, transformative, empowering birth work in all its nuances. Reproductive justice, racial justice, reclaiming ancestral wisdom, decolonizing the birth space. Here, my friends, we go deep. Join us each month as we chat with activists, scholars, healers, community wellness workers, birthing folk, and beyond to explore topics from their roots to their leaves. listening to episode 10, Decolonizing Birth. We are joined by Linda Jones and Michi Arguedas from the Roots of Labor Birth Collective. This is part three of a three-part series where we dive into the badass organization that is the Bay Area-based RLBC, aka Roots of Labor Birth Collective. These doulas of color provide full-price, sliding-scale, and volunteer doula services. They partner with Santa Rita Jail and Bay Area Clinics to serve low-income and communities of color. In this episode, we explore RLBC's approach to decolonizing birth. Our guests reflect upon the significance of Serena Williams speaking out about her traumatic birth, the many ways systemic oppression can show up in birth work, an ancestral calling in, and more. Stay tuned. And the Wimbledon champion of 2015, Serena Williams. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. Serena Williams. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I rise. Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides. Just like hopes springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weaned by my soulful cries? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide. Welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of a slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Big, big welcome to Michi and Linda. Thank you so much for being here. To start us off, uh, please go around and introduce yourselves. Tell us your name. Tell us uh, where your people are from. What are you doing these days? 
Thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Linda Jones, and uh, my people, I guess, are uh, black from Culpeper, Virginia, and the other half is Jamaica from Jamaica. And um, I am a mother, a grandmother, a great-grandmother. Um, I have been a birth and postpartum doula in the area for almost 30 years. And I'm also a photographer, mm. specializing in birth photography, which is my passion. And um, I'm getting ready to start doing that more professionally than I have in the past. And uh, the other thing is my friend is trying to get me addicted to quilting, which I'm not sure I want to go down that path <laughs> or not, but That's we'll see. That's a rabbit hole. It is a rabbit hole. <laughs> I can see already that it's a rabbit hole. So we'll see. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. My name's Michi Arguelas. I identify as a queer, mixed-race, Latinx person. Um, I was born and raised in Monterrey, Costa Rica, which is a small town on the top of a mountain in, in Costa Rica. And my people are, on my dad's side, um, a mix of indigenous folks from there and Spanish colonizers. And on my mom's side, um, I recently learned she's European. Um, and I recently learned that it's a mix of British, Irish, and Mediterranean. So um, as you can tell, I'm still kind of on this journey of figuring out where my people actually are from mm -hmm. and what they've done and what's been done to them. Um, I have a mix of both colonized and colonizer uh, lineages. And so I really dedicate my life to decolonizing myself um, first and foremost, and then also decolonizing the spaces that I'm in and the structures and systems that I live under. Um, so I am a birth worker and I, I consider myself a full spectrum birth worker, a full spectrum doula, which to me means I support people through their pregnancies, whether they're carrying them to term and having babies or whether they are terminating their pregnancies and having abortions. So I am a birth and postpartum doula and abortion doula. I also support folks both within the carceral system and outside of it. And one day I think I'll probably also be a death doula, which I think should be included in, in the description of full spectrum doula. I am also an herbal medicine student. And so that is part of my my personal journey to find healing within my own lineages and figure out what the traditional healing practices and medicines were of my people. Shout out to Ancestral Apothecary. Woo! Shout out to Ancestral Apothecary. <laughs> I am a Sosimana student, year one, um, loving the program and really loving the different depths and places that it's taking me and that it's pushing me to to figure out more about myself and, and where my people come from and how to heal the seven generations back, myself and the seven generations forward. Thank you. Thank yeah. you both. Unintentionally, that was probably the most perfect segue into today's discussion. Uh, a big focus of our conversation will be about um, what Roots of Labor Birth Collective describes as your approach to decolonizing birth. To give context to listeners about what this means, I would like to read an excerpt from your mission statement under the title, Decolonize Birth. We seek to undo the long-standing effects of how centuries of racism, colonization, sexism, homophobia, 
transphobia, and other oppressions intersect with medical practices around birth. We do this by centering people of color in an effort to change poor birth outcomes. These institutions attempt to take power away from women and birthing people by seeking to control where, when, how, and with whom, and if we birth. We seek to empower birthing people to claim agency over their bodies, sexualities, choices, and healing. Ah, that was so legit. <laughs> um, so racism, sexism, homophobia, and colonization are, are all forms of systemic oppression. Linda, what are some of the ways that systemic oppression shows up in the birth experience? Well, I would like to start with the racism part because um, black women in California die three to four times more than anybody else, white, mm -hmm. Latina, anything. Um, and this has to stop. And um, I chose the piece that you heard play earlier of Serena Williams quoting I Rise by Maya Angelou for a lot of reasons. Um, one, Serena is kind of like our poster child right now for the fact that institutions don't listen to black women. Uh, she almost died giving birth to her baby just a few months ago. And the only reason she's still alive, I believe, is because she's Serena Williams. Mm. If she had been any other black woman, she'd be dead right now. And mainly because Serena diagnosed herself. She made them do what they needed to do to find out what was wrong with her and told them how to cure her, mm. <laughs> all while having a C-section, having her stitches ripped out after she had them, going back into surgery to have them repaired, mm. having a pulmonary embolism, all of this stuff just to have a baby. One of the things that uh, was said that she, she really didn't want to have a C-section because she knew she was in danger of throwing a clot. But it turned out that she did. And I'm not sure that if, uh, if, if her birth had been managed a little different, she may not have had to have a C-section. Um, based on what I saw when I was watching her special, <laughs> it wasn't managed very well. Um, and she had a six-pound baby. She could have sneezed this baby out, but <laughs> she didn't. She ended up having to have surgery and almost dying. And I feel like... Um, if this happened to her, what do the other? What does everybody else have to right. deal with? And I do work through RLBC and through an organization I co-founded called Black Women Birthing Justice to try to let people be aware of what's going on in the Black community around birth and trying to correct it. Mm. And it has to be corrected. People always say, well, when asked, why is that happening? Why do black women die more than anyone else? Uh, people tend to first say, well, it's because black women are unhealthy. They're overweight. They have uh, diabetes. They get gestational diabetes. And yes, all of those things may be true. But also, they've done studies that show that highly educated, college-educated black women who are healthy and many times skinny um, die more than a white 
person who hasn't finished high school. So to me, that says it's not about our health. It's about how we're treated and how we get medical care and how we aren't listened to by the establishments that are supposed to be there to keep us healthy and keep us alive. Thank you. Thank you for that powerful story and breakdown. Uh, Michi, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. um, And I'd like to add to kind of piggyback off of what Linda was saying in that there is a strong connection, too, between mental health and physical health, right, and spiritual health and physical manifestations of illnesses. And so even if one is, like, quote, unquote, taking care of oneself, right, eating healthily and actually has money as a black person and has access to all of these different things, there are still lineages and there is still soul loss and there is still trauma, right, from genocide, from slavery, from just the ways that the OB system and the medical system has learned the knowledge that they carry today, right, is off of the bodies of of black women, of indigenous women without people's consent. Um, And so the plus the added stress of just living a life, right, where you encounter racism at every corner. And so this is going to have physical manifestations, whether or not you have money. Right. And on top of that, if you don't have money, And if you're living at other intersections as well, if you are undocumented or if you don't speak English or, you know, all of these extra layers where anytime a a birthing person of color walks into a hospital system, there are all these assumptions that are made, right, about how much they actually care or don't care about taking care of themselves and their babies and just things that where the blame is placed on the person, on the individual, instead of actually taking the time to really reflect and address the structural issues, right? The the when folks don't have access to clean water, when don't when folks don't have access to healthy food near their homes, um, if folks don't have access to being able to send their children to a school that has, you know, more peer counselors and police presence. So many different things, right, that that can impact um, what your blood pressure might read on a cuff when you first walk into, <laughs> a, you know, a hospital room, um, how you may test for gestational diabetes and what your weight may be, all of these different things, right, that are impacted by these racist structures and systems that are in place specifically to keep people of color down, right? That's That's how it's been for forever. So it's especially important. We believe that it's especially important for folks going into these spaces, which really are battlegrounds, while you are actively trying to open yourself and bring birth and bring spirit earth side, um, (laughs) which is just incredible magic that people are able to do under the circumstances, that it's especially important to have people around you have a doula present with you who understands your experience, who reflects your identity, who speaks your language, who knows what it's like to be somebody like you, you know, somebody that you feel comfortable with, somebody that uh, you as a birthing person trust and that trusts you and believes you, right? Because that's one of the main issues is that people, when they know themselves and they say, hey, I have a reaction to this medication or I really shouldn't be doing this, are not believed, So it's just so important to have people present who are in your corner and who trust and believe you and who the birthing people trust and believe too. Can I hop in for a moment? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes to everything you said. (laughs) Um, And I also want to throw in the dynamic about um, access to to 
prenatal care, um, if someone has access to privilege, right, and they're able to have regular doctor visits, for example, um, assumptions, as you mentioned, is really huge in that someone's assumption of what they perceive black culture or black attitude to be can then impact their ability to read signs for potential concerns, but then also can make assumptions about things that have no right to be assumed, right? Like there's a lack of communication that can happen because some medical providers can feel uncomfortable being there. So they want things to be quick and done and over with. On the other side is if someone's accessing nonprofit model, or I'm, I'm saying community-based, and I'm having air quotes here, um, because uh, community-based meaning that it's a nonprofit sort of approach in your community that's providing services, it can seem wonderful in theory, and a lot of times nonprofits are systems within themselves, right? Nonprofit industrial complex. Therefore, it's a whole onslaught of bureaucratic hurdles that one has to jump through in order to access care. So um, if you have another kid, that right, child care is a big issue. If you have a paid job, but because it's a nonprofit, you have to go in there during work hours, there's all sorts of things that then therefore make it inaccessible. And one of the bajillion reasons why I'm completely in love with your organization is because of how you guys embody this community-based approach meaning truly the community upon which you serve is the community that serves them. And then therefore, yeah, the empowerment model, that inherent belief in the person that you're serving from the moment you walk in and before. Um, that's just, that's, that's where change happens. Yes. I would <laughs> like to address also the, the other little piece of the prenatal situation. Yeah. Um, you touched on a lot of the the points of um, being a black person trying to get care in a prenatal clinic. It is kind of a battle. You know, it's a battle to get there. It's a battle to be there on time if you have other kids. It's a battle to try to find child care if you don't want to take your kids with you and have them sit around for four hours until you're seen. Uh, it's a battle to get a doctor to listen to you. And when you try to get them to listen to you, you're treated disrespectfully. Either you're answered by a one-word reply or you're not answered at all or you're not listened to and you're kind of shuttled off to whatever else you can find. And we've found in our research that people who are disrespected when they go to get prenatal care tend to not go back. And why would you? Right. Because if you're disrespected someplace, I know I don't go back to places where I feel disrespected. Uh, why would we expect them to? And then they're blamed for not having taken good care of themselves prenatally. And it's all put back onto them like it's their fault right. that they're trying to work within a racist system that treats them disrespectfully. And I think that's the one good thing that we have. One of the good things that we have about our LBC is that um, we care about the people that we are dealing with, and we respect them and take them where they are. You know, we don't try to expect things from them or put our beliefs onto them. We 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 meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. We treat them as the individuals that they are, with the specific needs that they're going to have as individual people based off of the intersections at which they live their lives and are able to navigate the world. And we're there to help 
manifest the kind of birth that they want to have, not the kind of birth that we want them to have. Exactly. Right? We're right. there to support them and their vision versus another agenda, which is so important to have somebody there helping to support you manifesting your vision, you know, or correcting doctors if they are continuously misgendering you or continuously making these assumptions or not listening to you, having another voice in the room that's like, mm, actually, they already answered that question, mm. you know, or it's it's written here in the birth plan if you would like to just take a look, you know, yeah. um, and just being that kind of quiet but consistent presence that's also like, yeah, we see you, you know, we see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. As mentioned in the highlighted paragraph that I had read just a bit ago, a large aspect of decolonizing birth is the empowerment of birthing people to claim agency over their bodies, sexualities, choices, and healing. Uh, Michi, can you speak more to this? Yeah, I love this question because this really speaks to the reason why I am a birth worker, the reason why I'm here today. Um, and for me, I became a w birth worker in response to an ancestral call to do this work. And my main ancestral guide is my abuelita, who I call Tita, so my Tita. And she was an incredible woman and also suffered through innumerable um, violences in her life um, and essentially was raised in a way where she knew nothing about her own body um, and about the different experiences that she might go through and about reproduction and about what um, someone with a uterus might experience. Like when she started menstruating, she knew nothing about it. She literally thought she was dying. She had never heard that this was something that would happen to somebody with a uterus. And when she was married, she learned via sexual assault that it was expected of her to consummate the marriage sexually or physically um, on the night of your marriage. And then to continue to be physically and sexually available to your husband whenever he needed it and wanted it. And then when she was pregnant with her first child, who is my, my dad... She, again, didn't really have any support around that. And as he got larger, she used to pee through her hands because she thought he was going to fall out. Hmm. And I still don't know really much about her birth story, about my dad's birth story, because it was so horrific that she never really wanted to talk about it. But in spite of all of these things, she was a boss ass bitch you know she was the matriarch of our family she was like by the time my generation came around it was well understood that we listened to her over any man you know um she was the cornerstone of our family and the funniest person that i've ever encountered in my life you know she is magic and even after she's she passed in 2013, so even now that she's in the spirit realm, she still comes to me and is guiding me, right? She is still that cornerstone of the family. She is still that leader and that guider and that source of wisdom, which is just so incredible and so powerful, such a testament to the magic inside of her. And so she she really came to me and said, listen, privileged one, <laughs> you know, it is your duty now. There's a lot of healing that needs to happen for me, for the generations back, for our lineage, for our family. And you need to work on this. <laughs> you know, you need to you need to get to it. Um, so she really called me into 
into birth work to begin with. Mm -hmm. And it is because of her and it is because of the other women in my lineages whose stories I may not know but are very similar to hers and the other women and the other people in the world who are our siblings and cousins and friends, you know, whose stories are all very, very similar. Um, And it's all connected to genocide, you know, to patriarchy, to to like overt in in our case religious colonization right like the roman catholic church coming in and raising you in a way where it's expected of you to be sexually available for the men in your life but telling you that abortion is immoral as is masturbation right so you have to be available but if you get pregnant and you're not ready you have to carry that baby to term and when it comes time for you to have sex unless you've really gone against that which is very difficult to do without any support you have no idea how you like to be touched what brings you pleasure what doesn't bring you pleasure something like boundaries is like Nobody in my family was raised with boundaries. Like, what even are boundaries, you know? Um, so so I really feel like it is my duty and is the reason why I do this work is to help support people in getting the information, getting the resources they need, having the time to really reflect on what do their boundaries look like, you know, asking questions in our prenatals, like, what makes you feel good? What makes you not feel good? What are ways that you find healing? What are things that bring you calm and bring you joy when things may be um, kind of coming to the surface for you? What are potential past traumas or hurts in, in your experiences and in your lineage that might come up for you when you're having to open yourself up so, so deeply to bring a baby to this world? And what are ways that I and the people who love you and are around you can help support you in having the safest and most comfortable experience? both for you and for the next generation that you're bringing into this world, you know, because that's part of that's part of the deal. Right. And like I I feel like I, I came to this work initially for personal reasons of really being called to heal the seven generations back in my lineage. And part of that duty is to heal the seven generations forward. Right. And so part of what drives us too is doing this work so that the little brown and black babies who are being born and being brought to this world have an opportunity to have their first experiences in utero and in the world not be violent, you know, and not just not be violent, but be in ceremony, be brought forth in ceremony with love and with respect. And that's truly the way that we see that we are building the kind of world that we want to live in, right? That's really the only way is to help cultivate the next generation to come through with peace and with respect and with ceremony the way that it's meant to be done. So, yeah, um, there's lots I could say about this. I mean, I feel like one of the important things that we do is Um, As I was saying before, really listening to people and respecting people um, and ultimately reminding them of their strength, Hmm. you know, and being a voice that can say, like, don't believe all those lies that you've been told and that we've been told that we are not strong enough to birth our own fucking babies. Right. You know, I have to I have to add a yes. little side to that. I, I did watch the Serena. I hate to keep bringing her up, but that's mm-hmm. kind of like she's in my mind right now and kind of in my body. And um, there's a there's a piece in it where she's taking the baby home and she's talking and she says, 
you know, I'm really sorry I had to have a C-section. Um, I know it's not what we planned on doing. But really, I'm not surprised because I never thought I could push out a baby. Mm-hmm. And if Serena Williams, who is probably the strongest woman on the planet, thinks that she can't push out a baby, where did that come from? Who told her that? Why does she have that in her head? Right. You know, and I, I've encountered people who say, you know, when I was 19, I went to a chiropractor and he said I'd probably never have kids because my pelvis is too small. I'm like, what? You know, and there's all these internalized things that um, stop women from birthing their children. And I'm not sure where they all come from. Uh, sometimes it's just in the ether, I think, that it's just that's what's to be expected. And I find that it's very hard for me to believe that people who are giving birth today, especially if they're way over the age of 35, like 35 and a half, <laughs> they're, they're not a lot. They're, they don't think that they can give birth. Mm-hmm. Where before, women could push out triplets. Nobody right. even thought about it. Right. They mm-hmm. could push out twins. They could push out breech babies. Mm-hmm. They stayed pregnant until they weren't anymore. There was no one telling them that it's better for you, dear, if you come in at 39 weeks and be induced to have your baby. Mm-hmm. You know, what is that going to do to the world? I was talking to a, a colleague yesterday, and, I'm, and we're like, how is this going to impact the future of people giving birth if we bring everybody in and and pump them full of medication to make them give birth rather than just having people birth spontaneously. Where is that going to go? If this is where we are today, where if you're pregnant with triplets, there's just, that's not even in the conversation Mm -hmm. that you can push them out. It's not even, you know, the doctors tell you right from the beginning, there's just, you know, don't even think, no, why would you think that? And now even with twin births, there's, you know, the sky has to be aligned just properly for them to even let them try, in quotes, to have their babies vaginally. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I feel like is more a reflection of the fact that providers have lost skills yes. Yes. than it is on the birthing people yep. and what the birthing people's bodies are able to do. Yep. But they put that on the birthing people. Of course. They say it's your, it's, you know, we, you aren't going to be able to do that. This right. is just not possible for you to do. And I'm getting ready to work with a client right now who is a black woman. And she initially wanted to have a home birth because she read all this stuff about how black women are dying when they go to the hospital to have their baby. She didn't want to be one of those statistics. And so she planned to have a home birth. And so she went to a local birth center and a little bit in, they did some tests and thought that she had gestational diabetes. Mm. And she said, well, what does that mean? What is that, you know, what are my numbers that you're so concerned? And they just said, well, people like you are better served to have your baby in the hospital. And that's kind of all they told her. And she left thinking, well, what do I do now? And she gets an email, you know, a week later saying, we no longer are serving you. So now what's she to do? So she finds another midwife practice, and they were going to work with her, and she was really happy with them. But again, the gestational diabetes thing came up, so they sent her to a program 
where they help people figure out how to eat right and try to manage manage it and maintain it. And when she got there, by this time, she had studied up on gestational diabetes. She's not an idiot. She's a very smart black woman. And she was funny. She said, I I wore a, a head wrap to the first appointment because my hair is blue and I didn't want to be, you know, somehow assume that I was whatever blue hair would, would be to those. I said, well, you maybe should have gone with the blue hair versus the wrap because that means you're black if you have your head wrapped up like that. So now you're really in trouble. So she said she went and they immediately wanted to put her on insulin. And she said, you know, I have a kid at home and my numbers are not that high. They're almost borderline. And they said, well, you need to have insulin. And she said, no, I, I read up on it. And I, she said, I Googled it. And he said, well, you shouldn't be Googling things. You, people shouldn't be self-diagnosing themselves. She said, well, I don't see it as self-diagnosis. I just see it as I don't want to be you know, dependent on insulin. And I know that there's a medication I can take rather than the insulin. So begrudgingly, they gave her the medication. But in the meantime... She said the doctor, who was supposed to be a specialist paradigmatologist, he came in, he didn't say hello, he didn't say, how are you doing, how's your baby? None of the pleasantries. It was just, I hear you don't want to take insulin. And why were you seeing midwives? Why would you even think about seeing midwives? That's craziness. You know, so he was basically not being human to her, and he was also berating her and making her feel like an idiot because she had gone to seek midwifery care. And so now she's at the place where she doesn't even want to go to a doctor because we found that if she goes to one of the local hospitals, they're going to want her to do ultrasounds and do all these testing every week. And she's I don't, I don't want to put my baby. That was why I wanted to go to a home, have a home birth. I don't want to put my baby through that. So now basically she's just going to show up at the hospital when it's time to have her baby. And we shouldn't put people in that place. Right. You know? Um, So when we talk about not having license over your own body or respect for the plans that you have or all of that, it feeds into the fact that we're putting people in unsafe positions sometimes because they're black and aren't treated well. And that, to me, is very wrong. Yes. This so much of what you said actually reminds me of doing this work, people sharing stories. And mm-hmm. one woman, uh, she's of Middle Eastern descent, and she shared with me that for her first pregnancy, uh, everything was all good. But the the culture of the practice, OB practice that she went to because everyone told her it was the best. But she felt like her body was, as she describes, a death trap where she felt hypervigilant, where something was going to go wrong and it was going to be her fault. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as it would happen to be, her first, uh, her first birth ended up in a, in a C-section because she had symptoms that the doctor wrote off as just, oh, you're right. Oh, it's just gas, right? <laughs> just gas. Um, and so her second birth luckily was a lot more um, of a reclamation experience. Uh, and then just thinking about my mom's experience. My mom, as a, she's a Mexican woman, and my mom transcribes these shows. So, mom, if I get this story wrong, don't be mad. Um, <laughs> my mom is a five three, I believe. So she may yell at me, say she's five four. Um, uh, she gave her first birth to my brother was when she was nineteen or twenty, and um, she also was told that she's too small to be birthing and. Right. 
When I first heard that story, and so it resulted in C-section, although apparently she was, quote unquote, let allowed. She was allowed to go into labor for like a hot second is what it sounds like. And then the doctor's like, oh, no, no, you're, you're too small. Um, the reason why that story, when I first heard it, uh, before I even got more politicized around birth, the reason why that upset me was because my mom is someone who I feel like a lot of the upbringing experiences, a lot of the experiences into her 20s are a series of examples of people telling her that she's like not smart enough or not strong enough, not intuitive enough, uh, not enough. Not enough. And hearing her story along with so much of what I know now, I feel like that's the narrative that is portrayed to to pregnant folk is that you're not enough to know what's best for your body, to know what's best for your baby. So even if someone's going through asymptomatic all the way through, there's that anticipation. If folks are feeling good within their pregnancy, um, it can almost be like, oh, because my care team is so awesome. Because my doctor gives me, you know, the thumbs up, then I'm good. Um, and then going into the birth room, like, and that's just right, that's like the dominant culture there. And then let alone going to the birth room, so many folks are like, well, why don't you be kind to yourself? Why would you put yourself through the trauma of unmedicated birth? Why would you do that to your body? Like, instead of, I know, sorry, I'm getting ungrounded because I'm getting emotional here. Um when they could be feeding this 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 ceremony right. from the beginning of empowerment and tuning into power. And then as y'all know, birth can be really intense. It can tear us down, but it can also build us up more than we can ever imagine. And then that's what I appreciate about what y'all have been describing and that I know is a strong aspect of um, your collective's work is believing in birth as sacred practice, birth as ritual, whether you want to call it that that name or not, knowing that um, supporting someone in such a way that no matter what happens, when they're holding their kiddo in their arms, they're holding in a place. They're holding them from a place of power, and that's the greatest gift that we could ever try to support our to offer our folks. Right, is supporting them in emerging into this next realm of parenthood from a place of power. Yeah, and it's very hard to do that based on the institutions that we have. And the reason I feel it's so good to have a birth worker with you when you go in to have your child is you have someone to try to hold that space for you. Because if you have done your homework and you've read up on you know, how you want to have your baby and what you do and don't want to have, if you happen to push back, especially as a black person, to push back, then you're called... Um, I forget the word, but basically you're not following the rules. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not doing what they want you to do. Mm -hmm. And then they quickly pull out, well, don't you care about your baby? Mm -hmm. Why would you do that if you cared about your baby? You know, and so it's just such a place of negativity when you go in alone most of the time. And I don't want to put it like that's always the case, but many times it is. And you need to have someone there to hold that space, to hold the ritual, to hold your wishes, and to Mm -hmm. also keep away the fear that's there Mm -hmm. because the hospital is full of fear. It's fear-based practice. It's very fear-based. And Mm -hmm. you want to keep that away from the person that's trying to do the most important thing that they'll ever do in their life. Right. Yeah. I just want to step in real quick to acknowledge something. So... 
Little that I've gathered is there's actually a fair amount of folk who listen to this podcast who work within hospital institutions. Mm -hmm. So for folks who are listening who work within hospital institutions or for folks who perhaps have had great experiences with OB practices and within hospital institutions, just want to note that this is not a conversation where we're putting things in, you know, a good quadrant and a bad quadrant. Um, we're acknowledging a very dominant culture that exists very most commonly within mainstream institutions, and also I'd say with a lot of in a lot of doula realms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So just acknowledging that that is what's being addressed, and therefore, if you are in that realm, this doesn't make you bad. But also, if you're in that realm, I encourage you to continue doing the work in in educating yourself and accessing. Uh, wellness centers outside of that mainstream institution so that you can use your privilege, you can use your access to truly make change. And I, and I say this, not just pulling this out of my head. You know, we did research and we talked to 100 black women and we got their birth stories through Black Women Birthing Justice. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There were people who had hospital births and they thought it was great. They didn't have any problem with the outcome, and they felt okay. There were people that had um, home births that never went to the hospital, and they, of course, had wonderful experiences. And there were a couple people who just stayed at home and had their baby by themselves, which is not what I'm promoting, but it's they did, and they yeah. were fine with it. But the majority of those 100 people that we talked to had traumatic births. And for those people that you're talking about that work in hospital or work in institutions, I want you to be able to listen to what we're saying without thinking we're putting blame on you. I want you to listen and maybe think about what you're saying or doing the next time you are with a person of color. Um, It's very hard, I know, because you're in these stressful situations and you know, you're charting and you're <laughs> whatever you're doing. And um, it's hard to sometimes take the extra step. And there are lots of assumptions that are made. I did a talk one time and the, the audience were nurses. And I said, when a black person walks up to the desk to come in to have their baby, uh, what are your assumptions about that person? And they, of course, said, oh, Oh, we don't think about them any different than anyone else. We don't see color. We don't see color. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand, Ari, that it's not you. But Mm -hmm. let's just, what do you hear in the nurse's (laughs) station or the doctor's lounge? What do you hear about black people when they come into birth? And then there's this big rush of, well, we kind of, I've heard that they, we, we think that maybe they, you know, didn't want the baby, or they don't have a partner, that they're going to be difficult to work with, that she's too young, too old to be having a baby, you know, all these things. And if this is what you as someone who works in the institution thinks just by looking at me as a black person, it can only go downhill from there. So you have to not do that. And then they, as white nurses, said, well, what can we do to make a difference? And I said, pretend I'm your daughter when I come in. Treat me like you would treat your daughter. Mm. Okay. If you don't want to treat your daughter with disrespect and assumptions and don't listen to her, don't do it to us. 
Right. You know, mm-hmm. so as as people who are listening to this, who work in in the medical institutionalized racism structure of most big establishments, be the different person, be the one who who does care about who you're taking care of. Yeah, and make sure that you've seen what an undisturbed spontaneous birth looks like. Hmm. It's incredible it's hard to how find many nowadays. Mm-hmm, it's incredible how many providers don't actually know what that looks like. And I feel like that's kind of like just baseline. You know, just yeah. baseline. You need to know what people look like in their natural state when they're having babies without interventions to be able to know when it is actually necessary to offer an intervention versus just what you've been taught, right? So I think it's also about being critical about what you've learned. Because I, I also see so, so many well-meaning folks who feel like they are truly implementing the skills that they've been taught to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. And they feel so good about what they're doing. But it's not done with a critical lens about how the institution that they're working in is a racist institution (laughs) and is a patriarchal institution that doesn't trust women and doesn't trust women of color. Right. So if if your patient is then an indigenous woman or a black woman. Right. Then it's like all of those things piled up on top of each other. And you feel like you're doing an incredible job implementing the things that you've learned. And you are by default also being misogynistic and racist, right? right? Um, Not necessarily because of a fault of your own, right? Or even that you know that that's what you're doing. Or that you're even aware, right? So I think it's it's kind of taking a step back and really reflecting on on those larger structures. What is the history? You know, how is it that these interventions have even come to be interventions, right? How do hospitals even know how to perform a cesarean section? Research that shit. You know, like let that sink into your bones Mm -hmm. before you're pushing that on a black person or an indigenous person. Right. You know. Thank you. Yeah. On the topic of culture, uh, this brings me to the next question I have for y'all, which is to invite you to speak more around your collective's approach to culture within birth worker spaces. Mishi or Linda, whoever wants to jump in there. What are your thoughts on that? Trainings. Um are kind of dear to my heart. It's not something that I do all the time, but I do sit on the trainings that RLBC is is doing now. And my feelings are that there are a lot of trainings out there. There are the big organizational trainings, and there are other trainings that that happen in, in local areas by people who decided that they can train doulas. God bless them all. But I feel like people of color who are going to work with people of color need to be trained by people of color. Simple as that. And um, the reason for that is that I, I feel like when we train our own people to serve our own people, there are things that are more spiritual-based rather than just the nuts and bolts of how to squeeze someone's hips in labor. It's talking about, you know, how to meet people where they are versus trying to make them fit into your mold that you learned in your training class. And my pet peeve at the very moment (laughs) are 
white doula trainings that have figured out that there are these people of color trainings going on, and that's where some of the people that could be taking their trainings are going. So it's it's kind of like the profit base. Mm-hmm. How do we get those people back? Mm-hmm. And so what they're doing are adding disparity workshops to their training, you know, so that we can they can tell people how there is a disparity between <laughs> white birth and people of color birth. And they usually find some person of color to train that segment, mm-hmm. which is interesting in itself, mm-hmm. rather than, than they trying to educate themselves as to what needs to be trained along these lines. They go, well, we'll just bring someone else in, and that means we're, now we're diverse training because we have people of color on our staff, and mm-hmm. we can now offer this to people who are looking for that kind of training. So I don't like that. <laughs> I think that that's not what is necessary. I think that if they're really serious about training white people, which is most of the doula trainings are filled with young white women or older white women who have decided that this is what they want to do, either as a career or as a stepping stone to midwifery. And they are mostly taught to work with people who can pay them a large amount in this area anyway. And so that does it, that kind of cuts out the community base because people that LBC work with can't pay us. Someone else has to pay us. And so they train them for the two days or whatever it is, and they tell them, you know, you can make $1,250, whatever the number is, right now. Don't take less. Hmm. And it's like, okay, well, that's interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> in itself. But it doesn't, I don't think these people are prepared to work with anyone, much less someone in the community, when they're trained this way. And they certainly can't go to the community and and get people from the clinic to pay them that kind of money, so it doesn't happen. And a lot of times they they will start to get practice. They go and work with people of color because who better to practice on? It's the history (laughs) that we get practiced on Mm, to to get further along in your field. But the problem with that is, and and I'm not going to take away from them that, yes, if a young white person or an older white person, whoever it is, a white person is sitting with a person of color during their birth, it's proven to just have a female presence in the room is going to be better than nothing. So, yes, they could help if they have it a little empathy at all. But I talked to someone once who had some kind of doula program where she oversaw a bunch of doulas, all of which were white. And she said, well, we we were trying to get them to go to volunteer at the community hospital in the area, but they're afraid to go there. You know, they're afraid their stuff's going to get stolen or they're afraid of, I don't know what they're afraid of, but I said, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Why would someone want to have someone who's afraid of them come and help Mm -hmm. them? You know, that goes against everything that we train people to do. So um, 
And that energy is going to be palpable. Yeah. People right. aren't idiots. Yeah. You right. can they, tell. That you know when somebody's afraid. Mm-hmm. And so, there's also that savior complex dynamic. Yes. If you are, I will brave. I will brave all the fear to come and save you. Exactly. I'm doing, the, I'm doing my thing. Right. So all that to be said is I, I really feel like the trainings have to be done by people of color if we're going to serve our people. And I kind of begrudge this, oh, look, you know, we need to we need to talk about black and brown people in our training because that's the trend right now. Let's check that box. Let's check that box and yeah. say, yes, we have someone doing that. And then the, the other piece of that is that all of a sudden now people are realizing that, that black women are dying, you know, four times almost in California, at one point, 12 times in New York City, hmm. more than anybody else. And so they're like, oh, you know, we need to do something about this. Well, I heard about this doula thing. Let's, maybe, maybe that'll work. And so let's, let's get, get Medicaid to pay for these doula people to come and help everybody. And that's nice. It'd be great to have someone fund doulas. And if Medicaid could do it, good. But what I, when I first heard that, my, my stomach just went to a knot because mm-hmm. I knew that what will probably happen and has already started to happen mm-hmm. is that in order for Medicaid to pay a doula, it has to be a certain kind of doula or trained by a certain organization. And so it's going to be, um, you have to be a donor, which is doulas in North America, which is a large certifying organization. You have to be certified by them or you have to be certified by this. So there's like one or two, mm-hmm. which are large white organizations. Mm-hmm. Super so expensive. Expensive. Totally and accessible and in white, a lot of realms. And white. Mm-hmm. And I know the person who started Dona. I know her heart is in the right place. But she's an 80-year-old white woman who I just sat through her history of birth, and it's just it wasn't my history of <laughs> History of birth. Was it started by Adam May Gaskins? No, no, it started by Penny Simpkin. <laughs> but, and I love Penny. To to give her due, I met her when I first started my doula career almost 30 years ago. And I really liked how she interacted with people. She's a very kind woman. Mm-hmm. And, and the way she talked about how you should be with doulas. And, and I really kind of, you know, modeled my practice of being a doula after Penny because mm-hmm. I liked her way of being. But She's white, and she only sees it from that lens, which is, I don't expect her to see it from a different lens. And I gave her our report when I went to see her and said, you know, maybe you want to read this. And she's like, oh, yes, we really must do things to help our people work better with this group of people. <laughs> like, oh, God. But anyway, it's a start. <laughs> it's a start. She, she yeah. at least has yeah. the intention. So, And I guess a lot of them have the intention. But still in all... Can it, I just it, also... Intention is super helpful initially and humility. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's not... Right? Like, good intent... What, what's the saying? I'm so bad with this. Good intent... Road to hell's paved in good intentions. intentions yeah. Just that... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's a lot more than that. Yeah. You have, you have to do the work. It is. And you need... Mm-hmm. We need humility to do the work yeah. and... And they need to bring... Yeah. If they really meant to do this well, they would... You know, they would see that... Mm-hmm. Women of color need to be trained by women of color and mm-hmm. not just one little section of the training, but mm-hmm. the whole training, not mm-hmm. just a part of it. So um, there's a lot of work ahead, I see, for us to mm. to let people 
in government or whoever comes up with the strategy of paying doulas through Medicaid, um, Medi-Cal, whatever it is, um, that there are there are local organizations that put out doulas that are probably better equipped, most likely are better equipped mm-hmm. to serve the population that they're trying to save. And so, you know, I know Black Mamas Matter is working on this and and we're working on it and, and it's just it has to be done because it, it can't it can't get to that. It really can't get to that. And also the whole medical method of payment is gonna be hard for doulas to make a living on. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you get paid, you know, three to six months down the line or whatever their right. length of mm-hmm. time is, it's that's not gonna work. So that right. has to be looked at too. Mm-hmm. And the other Thing that needs to be looked at is the way that funders fund organizations mm-hmm. and this work that we're doing because what we see a lot is funders only really prioritizing spending their money on research, which <laughs> there's nothing wrong with research. There's only something wrong if all of the money is going into research and there's only something wrong also if the research is asking questions that the community already knows the answers to. Right. So if millions of dollars are being funneled into asking, why is it that preterm labor exists? Why is it that black women are dying at a higher rate? Right. Like the community already knows the answers to this. And if people genuinely cared about making a difference in that, then they would take that money and they would invest it in the community and not invest it in other white people who have brought one black person or one person of color to teach a little segment to then go into a community that they know nothing about, right, to save. it. The money needs to go directly into the community, right? It and is. it can be a mix, but we're not saying only fund direct service either, but most of the money needs to go there, right? Yeah. period. And it's not going to change until the money is funneled into that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I work on, I'm working with a an organization as a an advisory board, and you know they're, they're you know they always oh well we want to find the answer for this and then the other and I'm like well just give me the money I already <laughs> yeah. know the answer yeah. I can <laughs> I can save you so much time mm-hmm. just give me the money I will tell you the answer because we all know the answer <laughs> and and I just feel like if they really meant to find out answers mm-hmm. then what they should do is take a population that they feel is at risk for whatever and do the things that it takes to make someone feel safe. Right. You know, meet their basic needs. Meet their basic <laughs> needs mm-hmm. and see if they bring a baby to term. Mm-hmm. Or let's see if they don't die during childbirth, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's not what's happening. And as Michi said, I, I really believe that if they wanted to, if you all are listening out there, if you <laughs> wanted to really impact mm-hmm. what's happening with black women, the inequities that are happening with brown people, the language barriers, then give the money directly to these people who are already doing the work that Mm -hmm. you are trying to research what to do Mm -hmm. because we're already doing it. Mm -hmm. We're already doing it. So let's help them do it. You know, Roots of Labor was put together and we put it together so that women could do this work, the good work they want to do, but still have a career and still feed their children, and still live in the Bay Area. Right. And you can't do that by volunteering. And I refuse to let it be a volunteer program. I said, I'm not training people to be volunteers. They have mm-hmm. to be paid. And so we're doing all kinds of things, you know, once the grant ran out to try to make that happen. But if you want the struggle to stop 
so that we can serve these people the best way possible, then we need to be funded. We need to be funded. And that's kind of the nut of it. And I just want to quickly say also that not all of the doulas in our collective identify as women. And so just making a little note there about Mm -hmm. the fact that folks of many different kinds of gender identities and sexual expressions are needed to do this work Mm -hmm. and are part of this collective too. So we we are continuing to do this work of also decolonizing our own ways of speaking too. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, this being the third episode of the series, sprinkled throughout each, we've been talking about ways to offer support, and especially for folk who identify as white or who are socialized as white, or even folks of color who feel uncomfortable thinking about working within communities of color. That's very real, too. Um, for folks who acknowledge that this is important work to do and know that you aren't in a space to be of service directly, or let's just say you're not someone who feels comfortable um, sending a big old check. One thing I'd like to challenge y'all to consider is a lot of spiritual traditions have, you know, numbers holding a lot of meaning. And I think this might be my Catholic upbringing, but 10%? Is that? I may be making it up. Tithing. Tithing, yeah. Which is it's something to consider, especially mm-hmm. in the Bay and also mm-hmm. with birth work. As you mentioned, the Bay is its own intensity. Yeah. But birth work, sometimes one month you're like, awesome and another month you're like barely paying your stuff so um i really am a fan of having it be part of the practice for it to be okay like 10 percent of this month or 10 percent of of each birth that i accept or whatever you frame is going to go to roots of labor birth collective is going to go to work that i know even if i could attend all the trainings and even if i all my intentions are in alignment is work that knowing that the work is best done by community that is not you. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the humility, mm-hmm. but that's also part of this power. There's mm-hmm. there's no shame in that, right? Mm-hmm. There's no shame in knowing when to step up out of our boxes and when to stay in our lane. Right. So mm-hmm. again, I'll speak for myself. The comments I make here within this series is not like, you know, a flow chart. Are you white? Do you think you may be white? <laughs> like, you know, this, um, Go this way. <laughs> these are just exactly, these are just... Uh, some things to ponder and to think about. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if, if asked the question, after I've already said send money, <laughs> there are people who can't send money. You know, they can't. Mm-hmm. And I ask of those people, now that you've heard us and you've heard what we're doing, talk us up. Mm-hmm. Tell people what's going on in the community. Let them know that there is this organization that's trying to make it better. Spread the word. Yeah. Spread mm-hmm. the word and let people know that there are all these amazing people who are doing stuff that other people may not want to do, frankly speaking. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we're doing it with, with grace and with love and with spirituality. And it's what's needed to get them where they need to be. Mm-hmm. So if you can't monetarily help us, then help us by spreading the word about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have maybe extra cash to give, but you have something like a space, a location, you know, donate a space for us to use to be able to gather and do our organizing work and do our healing work, right? And do our like, trainings in. Do our trainings in, right? There are many different ways that you can plug in to be supportive that goes beyond just, you know, 
X amount of dollars donation. Talk to your family members about racism. You know, talk to you may know people or you may be people who work in the hospital system. Right. There's so many different ways to plug into the multiple different layers that people are trying to navigate through when just wanting to birth healthy babies in this country. And even just like Linda said, talking us up, but also really delving in as we are all doing too, I know as I'm doing myself, into your own lineages. And where are the places that your people may have been harmed that need healing, but where are the places also that your people have done harm that need healing and that need repairing? And what are different ways that you can work on really doing some of that repair? Thank you. In closing... I do invite you to offer any advice, wisdom, or guidance to those who might be listening. So Nayira Wahid is one of my favorite poets um, and authors, and there are many, many poems that I could have chosen. But um, one of the ones that I came across recently while scrolling on Instagram um, was a poem titled Seek, and it goes, You will find your way. It is in the same place as your love. And this poem to me can mean so many different things. But to me, I feel like it really brings me back to when I think about where is my love, right? Where should I invest my love and where is it? It brings me back to myself first and really thinking about what are ways that I can show myself true love and care? Because that is, that is the first step, right? We can't truly care or love anybody else if we're not showing ourselves love and care. And so doing that kind of introspection, that kind of self-reflection and, and genuine caretaking of ourselves first, checking in with ourselves, what does my spirit need today? You know, what does my heart need? What does my body need? What do my ancestors need what are the elements communicating to me? What, what memories is the water carrying? What memories do the plants hold? What lessons can they teach us? And spending more time in silence, sitting in the presence of love and really trying to find where your love is and where you really want to invest that love, I feel can just open incredible pathways to being guided to where it is that you're meant to be going and how it is that you're meant to invest your labor and your time and your resources. So start with start with self first, I would say. And for those of you who are like me and not quite as woo-woo as me. <laughs> <laughs> That balance is necessary. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. The yin and yang of it all. Um, I say sit in gratitude. Mm. You know, um, Be grateful for what you have and for what you can offer someone else because no matter how little you have, you always have something that you can offer someone else. And um, I think I'll leave it at that. I think it's just sitting gratitude. Roots of Labor Birth Collective is a doula of color-led grassroots organization serving the Bay Area. 
We offer full spectrum doula support to families of all identities, and we cannot provide these services without you and your community support. To donate and learn more about our work, visit our website, rootsoflaborbc.com. The music you heard on today's show is entitled Freedom by Beyonce. Deep gratitude to Linda Jones and Michi Arguedas from the Roots of Labor Birth Collective for being our guests. Follow me on Instagram at birthbruja to continue the conversation. I've been your host, Ari Guajardo-Johnson. The Birth Bruja podcast is produced by Catherine Petru of We Rise. Be sure to check out show notes for links and resources. Follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes to help us expand the impact of this work. Until next time, my friends, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude. Keep on running cause the winner don't quit on themselves